true, we lower our defenses and suspend disbelief for the sake of a good story and for the sake of entertainment, but we are willing participants to his illusion and deception. They are fun. I am not putting Spielberg in with the likes of Bernays, Littman, and the rest who would use their evil on unwitting uh, innocent targets. I'm also not claiming that surprise uh, attack in all scenarios is amoral. Absolutism is a cognitive illness. <laughs> Practical jokes rely on it, right? Though some can be, uh, you know, large-scale Ocean's Eleven-type scams. The punchline of those is the, the target knowing they've been punked or robbed. Though the most sinister grifts are when the target never knows, or worse, is brainwashed by some abuser to think they somehow deserved it. Attacks where the, the target never knows are, are usually sinister. Otherwise, why the secrecy? And this is what Bernays preaches, right? It's a long after. They don't want the targets to know about it. And if they do, it better be long after it happened. So perhaps it's a test of character of the target, perhaps a test of the efficacy of, of some form of manipulation. In regards to conflict, Bernays claims we have to take sides. I used to be like that when I was a kid, but after reading about conflicts between groups of people's long dead with no clear good guy, you know, they were both assholes, I matured and realized that I did not have to take a side. If a long-haired 13-year-old punk kid can figure that out, how the hell does uh, an enlightened New York thought leader like Walter Lippmann or Edward Bernays not? I don't know, Chief. He's either very smart or very dumb. <laughs> that they are talking about uh, and not instinctively doing is proof they are aware of it. And and one would assume they are they question the validity of arbitrarily choosing a side. One might jump to the conclusion that they are not claiming that's what they do, but perhaps a trend they observe. If that were the case, why wouldn't they just say that? Like some detached academic observation. But these guys use overgeneralizations and absolute positive flawed reasoning. They, they claim everybody else uses. So... Who is Bernays' target audience with this book? Is he, you know, using the lowbrow trope like assertions to appeal to the target's lowbrow trope reasoning to ingratiate himself to the target? Or, uh, you know, like minds think alike crap in, in hopes that the uh, that argument will make the target like him and therefore lower their critical guard? Or is he doing a, you know, a, a just a piss poor job at it? I don't know. The more I read, the more I dislike this guy. So if that's his goal... He's failing. This concept of like minds, or, you know, birds of a feather gathering together, is that minds with similar view or similar modes of reasoning, right? Does an irrational, emotionally unhinged idiot agree with someone like themselves who's an emotionally unhinged idiot? Probably not. They probably sort of screaming at each other, right? It appears, you know, to be only similar views. And modes of reasoning are not a factor. How they came to that conclusion is almost not relevant in a lot of the cases. Otherwise, everyone with an idiotic mode of reasoning would agree with the other idiots, which, you know, the Middle East, our universities and governments are proof they do not. Right? The conflicts I'm talking about. The modes of reasoning are clearly a vector uh, to be exploited by manipulators. So is there a technique where the manipulator gives a definition of something and then claim its equivalent to its synonym. <laughs> that might get a, an idiot to nod their head, I suppose. Yes, 
x equals the equivalent of x. I agree with that. Therefore, I like the cut of his jib, and now I'll lower my critical guard if I even had one. <laughs> it's like the uh, the hyperbolic cliche of political speech. You know, dampness is wet, and I will do everything in my power to keep virtues good. The crowd applause, you know. Suspense is interest, and the crowd applauses, you know. Use suspense on unwitting targets to get their attention is false logic. You need to first get their attention in order to uh, get them to feel suspense. You know, it has to, in, in order for it to exist, you need their attention first. Or use the non sequitur logic of uh, definition as a bullshit assertion. Suspense is weakness. You know, or they could easily claim suspense is strength. You could just come up with these random, you know, bullshit definitions. They're just bullshit assertions. If a target can make a phantom connection, they've taken the bait and now the predator can start reeling them in and club them to death when they reach the boat, unless they're Quint's jaws or Ahab's white whale, if you prefer mammals to fish. Yes, jaws is a ripoff of Moby Dick. Or is it just paying homage? I don't know, framing. <laughs> Either way, I'm cool with it. It was a good movie. Now, do we have to pick sides? No. When my daughter was very young, I had Jaws on. She was way too young to be watching it, but she has an old soul. So when Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, shot the scuba tank and blew up Jaws, my daughter said, oh, poor shark. <laughs> I think even at that young age, she separated movie making with the story and thought the shark was blown up for the sake of a movie. To be honest, I'm not sure if they did kill sharks for that movie <laughs> or that scene. I don't know. They're the... Uh, we weren't even advocates of animals. I think Kratz creatures might have had some impact on her. Or she didn't care much for Roy Scheider and was rooting for the shark. <laughs> My point is, if we pick sides in a story, it may not be the side the manip manipulator expects. But we don't have to pick sides. Bernays writes that not only do we have to take sides, but we have to be able to take sides. I think he means the capacity to experience something vicariously, to experience it through the perspective of someone else. We must step out of the audience onto the stage and wrestle as the hero for the victory of good over evil. We must breathe into the allegory, the breath of our life. No, we don't. We don't have to do that at all. And the protagonist and the antagonist, if real, will exist without the necessity of our breathing our life into them, which is really, you know, effed up framing as we aren't putting our life into them. They are putting their thoughts, what they want, into our minds if we allow the vicarious mode of thought to happen. Of course, we allow this vicarious mode to happen when we read, you know, watch movies, or, or listen to good fiction. I imagine myself hiking through Middle Earth when I read, you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, or as, as the badass Max Rokitansky when I watched Mad Max. But then when I watched, you know, football or MMA or whatever, I appreciate good moves by either side. You know, I'm, I'm fairly indifferent to who wins, who wins unless I bet on it. You know, I'm, uh, I know I'm not alone on this. Of course, uh, if my child is playing, I'm rooting for her team. Uh, but I have, you know, no urge to crow over the other kids or the other parents when her team wins, you know, nor do the other parents unless they're hiding it. <laughs> but seriously, in your face, loser. <laughs> right? I don't know. Only, uh, you know, in a hockey game, have I seen parents like that? And only a few times. Of course, people might joke around and say that, you know, jokingly. Although I don't live vicariously through many, today, if any, today. Uh, movies are so full of 
BS woke bigotry that they are not even, you know, there are no characters I can relate to. There, there aren't even characters that I like on any, on any of, of the sides, never mind living vicariously through them. You know, maybe this is intentional. I don't know. It could be agitprop, but I'm clearly not the target of today's movies. Um, or filmmakers just suck that bad today. My uh, older sister had a boyfriend who went to film school when I was a kid, and he would crap all over Hollywood and Spielberg. I never understood his issues then, and I still don't today. Maybe as an adult, he saw Spielberg movies uh, then as I see the woke garbage of today. I don't know. He really liked the film Eraserhead for some reason. <laughs> Probably because it was black and white and he was a proto-hipster, you know. I don't know. Though I uh, I do like those old uh, Akiro uh, Kurosawa films like uh, Rashishan. What's it called? Rashomon? Rashomon. Um, anyways, but uh, Buddy, the, the film student boyfriend, never mentioned that. But uh, anyways, Bernays claims that fights will draw a crowd simply due to the principle of pugnacity. I went to a boxing match in, in Niagara Falls to watch somebody's kid, nephew, niece, I can't remember who, but uh, we were the only people there who weren't parents or officials. So, so much for being, uh, you know, for crowds drawing in, you know, by the principle of pugnacity. There's nobody interested to come watch this fight. Right. Bernays is living in a fantasy world where every conflict is full of drama, like the Karate Kid's final, you know, showdown. You know, go downtown uh, St. Catharines, uh, hear two bums yelling at each other, and there, there's no crowd, right? There's a conflict, but there's no crowd. You don't see people cheering the, the toothless guy over the guy not wearing pants, right? Yes, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but that's, it's, it's true. Bernays claims his uh, instinct-emotion uh, combo of self-display and elation is also a vector of attack. All right, so what he means by uh, self-display is virtue signaling, and the emotion he ties to that is elation. Apparently, from this, we are to infer that people feel good when they project that they have virtues and act and think in a virtuous way, perhaps to imply they have these virtues that others do not. A pathetic way of trying to project they are above others, perhaps? I don't know. It's not intrinsically wrong to project virtues one thinks are best or aligned with their personal values. In fact, it should be encouraged so we all know who we are dealing with. <laughs> Unfortunately, the reality with many is that they are signaling virtues which they do not actually have, only those virtues which they think will shine positively on them. It's insincere and in the political arena. It's often exposed when a politician who claimed to be a feminist is brought up on sexual assault assault charges or they champion ethics and transparency and fire an attorney general for trying to keep backroom deals from perverting the law so just look at justin trudeau uh you know his term as, as prime minister for countless examples of this phony virtue signaling bernays asserts it's often found to be true that when a man's adherence or allegiance to a movement is lukewarm and he is publicly praised for his audience, he will become a forceful factor in it. That is why hospitals name rooms after their donors. So public recognition is the point of virtue signaling, and those who crave it are vulnerable to the attacks of the manipulator. Some crave public recognition for you know something good, others not so much. Chuck Yeager famously said that that and 50 cents will buy you a cup of coffee. He was talking about celebrity or being well-known. So those who desperately crave the public's recognition, attention, or admiration may not realize it's hollow 
and are mostly effed up due to their, you know, either their innate nature or their parents didn't give them enough attention or approval or support or whatever. I don't know. Perhaps this is why Marxists are so desperately against the nuclear family. Without attention, support, and approval of a parent, all those Marxist kids will grow up damaged and be easy to control via this mechanism that Bernays is touching or touting on. Touting? Touching on? Touting? <laughs> the the self-display elation vector. The virtue signal joy weakness. Antifa, anyone? <laughs> so Bernays asserts the parental love tenderness combo are uh, continually employed by the manipulator. Example, the the baby kissing candidates, uh, you know, starving babies for, you know, charity drives. The, uh, he writes, even, even issues where the child was not the prominent factor uses this appeal. So a modern example was the, uh, the photo of a child face down in the water to push a narrative drastic appeal to emotion and not facts about the situation while tragic children die every day and to shamelessly use that child's death as a promotional tool for any cause is callous and revolting bernays focuses on four instincts that are vectors attack for the manipulator gregariousness individualism acquisition and construction interesting Gregarious individuals who acquire and construct things as targets to change. <laughs> Why not the opposite? Why not unsociable, reserved uh, collectivists who surrender and destroy things? Right? If you had to name the first group, what would you call them? And if you had to name the second group, what would you call those? <laughs> In terms of uh, sales, it makes sense that Bernays is targeting the instinct to acquire things. Obviously, gregarious instinct, it's utilized when PR controls the gregarious leaders. They also control the herd, so Bernays asserts. It appears one just needs to fabricate what appears to be a gregarious leader, and some sheep will follow that artificial construct. This could explain why PR are so desperate to claim X speaks for a certain demographic, which they do not. PR just needs their clients uh, to believe that. Is, is there impact via, you know, appeals to celebrity? Absolutely. Is it all-encompassing? Does it work on everyone? Of course not. Bernays writes, these subdivisions are so numerous that there are large companies in the U.S. whose business it is to supply lists of groups and group leaders in different fields. Let that sink in. I'll read that again. The subdivisions are so numerous that there are large companies in the U.S. whose business it is to supply lists of groups and group leaders in different fields. A hundred years ago, they were doing that. There were large companies doing that a hundred years ago. Imagine the data harvesting and lists that are going on today. All for the purpose of manipulation of the target's opinions and acts. Bernays say they may be... uh, unintentional collateral manipulation on a group. You know, if, for example, the leader being targeted is both an economic, in an economic association and a welfare association, if the program is economic, there may be collateral manipulation among his followers in the welfare field too. So is Bernays' point that PR must be careful of overlap of targets? We only want group A to believe X. We want group to believe Y and not X. You know, why, why would he be concerned about this? Right, to to pit two groups 
against each other, maybe, right? Like, why else would you want to have two separate uh, targets of manipulation? They may want to create conflicts, public relations, right? So uh, concomitant, right? Concomitant means naturally accompanying or associated. Concomitant. She loved math with all its concomitant logic. So next, Bernays moves to individualism. He asserts individualism is concomitant with gregariousness. Individualism is a moral stance that emphasizes the worth of the individual. Gregariousness is enjoyment of others or uh, tending to form in a group with others of the same kind. Bernays asserts individualism is concomitant with gregariousness. They are not correlated. But if I had to, I might argue the opposite. Valuing the worth of the individual has no correlation to a tendency to form a group with like-minded people. Surely there are gregarious people who enjoy the company of others while also valuing the individual. I could see how an individualist would enjoy the company of unique others as their value as individuals would interest the individualist, whereas a collectivist would view other people as just useless cookie-cutter copies. And, and give the individual no value, hence the history of mass murders in collectivist regimes. So maybe Bernays has a valid point that individualists value others. How could an individualist not value others? They would have to believe that they are unique and special, whereas everyone else are just paper people, and that would be sociopathic. But it appears that Bernays is defining collectivism and calling it individualism. He claims the desire for individual expression is always a trait of the individuals who make up the group. When these guys refer to the group and not a group, we have to infer they mean a Gustavian group, a collective mind. Despite writing it twice, individual is not the definition of collective. <laughs> the group, while composed of individuals, is according to Laban the antithesis of the individual. Associating the group with an instinct of individualism is so creepy that it sounds Marxist. We have to know Bernays lost his mind further <laughs> when he writes, Individualism goes hand in hand with self-display, that is virtue signaling. The definition of individualism is not caring what the crowd thinks or at least giving it a low priority. So an individualist would not need to appeal to the crowd and virtue signal. So Bernays asserts the instincts of acquisitions and construction are minor as far as PR go, and only used in campaigns like own your own home or build your own home. Bernays briefly touches on the susceptibility of, to uh, suggestion, imitation, habit, and play. Habit is huge for PR, which, you know, they use continually. He conflates mental habits with stereotype, which is odd. One could have a mental habit of stereotype, or one could develop a mental habit of questioning stereotypes. Anything can become a mental habit, good, bad, ugly, whatever. Bernays talks of direct evil manipulation via reflexive images, which occur after conditioning, or play on stereotypes that are a great aid to PR in a, as a, uh, a shortcut to, uh, to the desired reaction of the target. Appeals to stereotypical racism have more effect on those who are racist and think in stereotypes. Hence, the monkey shirt B 
being seen as racist only by virtue signaling racists who see black people as analogs to monkeys. A kid, any kid, should be allowed to wear a shirt with a monkey on it without some woke bigot interpreting it as racist. A monkey shirt is the Rorschach test for racist, woke bigots. Black kids, white kids, kids of any pigment should be able to wear a shirt with a monkey on it that reads, coolest monkey. This is ridiculous. I've called my kid a monkey many times. Does the shade of her skin have any effect on my being able to do that? Only to a racist, woke bigot who associates everything primitive with dark-skinned people. So Bernays gives his stereotype for generals and farmers who claims those are some of the uh, those are the same stereotypes for most of us. I did not share either of his stereotypes, and I doubt most of us today still do. But like Bernays, I'm basing that on abductive logic of best guests and not empirical inductive logic of statistics with sufficient data points. Bernays' base premise is to base PR on stereotype and reinforce any stereotype to aid this. Sounds like a liberal propagandist who claims the country is full of only illiterate rubes. Country as in rural. (laughs) Bernays writes, PR sometimes uses current stereotypes, sometimes combats them, and sometimes creates new ones. Stereotypes. So they use current stereotypes... Sometimes they fight stereotypes, which you would think is a good thing, but they're fighting them with other stereotypes. And sometimes they just create new stereotypes, according to Bernays. He says that when PR adds to existing stereotypes, it gives greater carrying power. So when PR adds to existing stereotypes, it... uh, it gives greater carrying power. <laughs> so he cites how a how framing a country like Austria can be framed negatively or positively depending on the associating stereotypes, like that of the Waltz and the Blue Danube uh, for positive type, uh, and we can come up with negative uh, stereotypes on our own. Stereotype of a word is conflated with meanings and definitions of it, right? So when you have a stereotype of a word or a concept versus the actual, the opposite, which would be the definition or the archetype, which is not surprising as Bernays conflates uh, stereotype with archetype often. Archetype, you know, meaning essentially the definition. So it could be, you know, I'm not going to redefine it. So there is no stereotype of a lobster. There is a definition and an archetype of that creature. When you think of the concept of lobster, right, there's a definition in your mind of what you think a lobster is, and that is also the archetype of your lobster. So you see this creature could be red, but I don't think they're red until they're cooked. There might be some wild ones that are red. but The definition of, say, a white person is a, depends though, right? If you're a woke bigot, they, they, they're trying to redefine what a white person is. But generally, the accepted definition of a white person is someone with ethnic roots to Europe, perhaps parts of Asia, and even North Africa. Whereas the stereotype 
of white people that woke bigots are trying to redefine as the definition. So they're trying to portray their stereotype of white people as the definition of white people. And this is the crux of woke bigotry. So it's, and, it, and, and their, their stereotype is not what it is, right? So that's the difference between stereotype and definition. So Bernays is arguing PR is based on stereotype. So he's admitting that stereo or uh, PR is based on stereotype, not definitions, not archetypes, not facts or data, but stereotype. That we still see this in the news today implies or demonstrates that they are intentionally using stereotype and therefore are intentional bigots. They aren't ignorant bigots, as in ignorant as in uh, unknowing. They are ignorant as in rude, but they are, uh, they're intentional, they're calculating. And the fact that they are, uh, the fact that they are still around after a hundred years, after Bernays wrote this crap, implies there must be some effect to their method. Or at least they must believe that there is effect to their method, as the ratings are, are tanking, so maybe they're, the effect is waning as the, uh, the zeitgeist of the population are becoming a little more uh, aware. <laughs> so he refers to a PR council who craftily named their plan American Valuation. So he thinks that American Valuation for a plan is a very crafty plan for the perspective of public relations because it makes it difficult for their adversaries to attack them. Ho, ho, slow down a second here. So naming something which makes it difficult for your enemies to attack you is a PR, um, uh, what's the word? I don't know, something valuable to PR, right? This is something your, your goal, you're, you're aiming for. I can't find the words, but. So to attack the American valuation plan would appear to be an attack on American values. So their adversaries had to, their adversaries in public relations had to put uh, American values in quotes to imply they were not real American values. So, of course, the same thing happens today with the naming of groups like anti fascists, anti racists, uh, you know, all children matter and black lives matter. The tactic is to make it difficult to attack anything those groups say or do as it appears to be pro-fascist, uh, pro-racist, against children, or against black people, or implying black people don't matter. It's all very Orwellian uh, public relations 101. You know, all a questioning uh, person or group needs to do is just put um, their name uh, or call them so-called, right? Put their name in quotes or call them so-called to demonstrate that it's just a title and that their actions may not be what their title is, right? So you see the anti-fascists are clearly fascist and the, a lot of these anti-racist groups are trying to divide people based on skin color. And uh, these all children matter. Well, who said any children don't matter? Nobody said that, right? And Black Lives Matter with the... Uh, well, see, again, you have to be careful because it's the there's the political Black Lives Matter, and then there's all the useful idiots who just say, well, of course Black Lives Matter. Well, of course Black Lives do matter, 
but so do white lives and so do all lives, right? But the movement, the political movement of BLM are um, uh, Marxist, according to their website. And uh, they are uh, the, one of the uh, skanks that uh, are, uh, you know, the chief uh, puba of the, uh, of the group is a uh, former uh, Black Panther Marxist, uh, you know, uh, hater. And, uh, and that's, just, that's just the facts. So they, uh, it's pretty crafty. These people read these books too, right? So it's not like it takes a lot to come up with a name that makes it hard for people to attack you. Right, just like Black Lives Matter, just like uh, you know, you call yourself anti-fascist, or you call yourself anti-racist, or you call yourself, you know, uh, uh, feminist. Right, when in fact you're not. Like, take a look at the, a lot of politicians love saying that they're feminists and they're pro-women when in fact they are against women. They're they're so. Anyways, Bernays refers to images and icons things as provokers of stereotypical imagery. For example, national flags behind a person speaking at a podium or in a video, a scientist next to some beakers, or someone wearing a stethoscope or a white smock, or trademarks and other emblems. So this is, this is, a, is a warning for us, right? These are tools used by manipulators. These are tools used by propagandists and, and deceivers, right? So if you see somebody with a national flag behind them, there's a good chance that flag was put there intentionally, right? To deceive the public, to make them think of a stereotype. Oh, this person is pro-nationalist, or this person is, is aligned with which they may not be. They might actually be the enemy of whatever they're standing for, right? Or, or in front of. Same with, uh, you know, um, beakers, just because they have beakers, just because even if they are a scientist doesn't mean they aren't compromised to their funding source or stupidity, which we see often. Or if they're wearing a stethoscope, just because they're a doctor doesn't mean they're a complete idiot. Like we've seen lots of complete idiot doctors out there or regulatory captured doctors who lie and don't do what's in the best interest of the patients. And of course, you have the trademarks and emblems or any kind of symbolism, Right. And these are just tools of, it almost doesn't need to be said, but it does because people are falling for this stuff. So there's, uh, he, he gives a warning, I, I think, to the, to the power hungry. There is one danger in the use of stereotypes by public relations. That is by the substitution of words or other acts. Demagogues in every field of social relationship can take advantage of the public. So it's a powerful weapon that can be used by evil, well-heeled um, uh, monsters to take advantage of the people. So regarding play, Bernays only asserts that the organizers of play find friends. Perhaps he means a vague a virtue signaling type thing. I'm not sure, but play is apparently good for PR. So if you... Uh, appear to be playing, but I, this has got to be context dependent, right? Anyway, so Bernays dives into the practical methods of modifying the opinion of a group. He claims the uh, the specific stimuli and circumstances circumstances are infinite, so he'll cover the uh, the meta meta stimuli or outline the fundamentals to apply when attempting to brainwash unsuspecting innocent targets. Sounds good to me. Let's hear it, Eddie. So he claims, 
PR has um, recourse in common with statesmen, journalists, preachers, lecturers, and others engaged in attempting to modify the public opinion. <laughs> so recourse seems to uh, be an odd word choice to me. <laughs> recourse means no way out, right? Or uh, means a way out, I should say. So a, a remedy or a, uh, a source of help in a, a sticky situation or a difficult situation. So it's interesting, too, that he implies all those professions are engaged in brainwashing of a, uh, an unsuspecting public. Bernays breaks down the PR narrative-making process and plan of attack. I'll number them. First, PR must analyze the client's problem and his objective. Second, then he must analyze the public he is trying to reach. Third, he must devise a plan of action for the clients to follow. Fourth, determine the methods and the organs of distribution available for reaching his public. Fifth, Finally, he must try to estimate the interaction between the public he seeks to reach and his client. How will the client's case strike the public mind? Bernays clarifies even more. By public mind, here, is meant that section of those sections of the public which must be reached. <laughs> so to review, client's objective... Who are those targets? Plan for clients. Methods to reach the targets. Estimated targets response. That, my friend, is Public Relations 101. Bernays gives an example of a client wanting the public to have a certain opinion on a bill. It's easy to picture what he writes um, as a bubble chart. He says... PR must see himself as a member of the public, manufacturer, retailer, importer, employer, worker, financer, politician, and PR need to see themselves as various subdivisions within these groups. So, of course, they are not members of the public <laughs> by default. If they have to see themselves, they have to pretend. So... Uh, PR, according to Bernays, must generalize, uh, generalize as far as possible from these various points of view in order to strike upon the appeal or group of appeals which will be influential with as many sections of society as possible. If your target happens to be a broad brush, but sometimes they might focus and then you may not want it to appeal. Like he said earlier, you don't want the cross-contamination from the, uh, what they, who are they? The welfare people and the, uh, the accountants or something. I can't quote. So his point, I guess, is stereotype and generalize as far as possible. <laughs> it's amazing that PR has any effect, as I said before. The fact it does is evidence that there is apparently power to stereotypes and generalizations on the public. I suppose it's a matter of resources. If uh, the manipulator really needs to know what, you know, say nurses think, 
they could pay for a massive study, or he could just use the stereotype of what he thinks nurses think, and that will suffice. When no easy data is available, just use stereotype. Not a critical mode of thought, but uh, you know it is a heuristic, and it's a sort of a you know corner cutting measure, right? So Bernays recommends this mode to the manipulator class. This is a powerful insight into the workings or algorithms of the mind of the monster, or of a monster, I guess. There's more than one, perhaps. Is there an alternative that PR could use when there's no data or resources available to gather it? Yes. They could not make claims or base decisions on claims that are unfounded. <laughs> but it appears best guess and go, right? These are the heuristics of public relations. This is what they're telling people, or at least their, their audience that they will do or should do. Though one could surmise that the various views possible and, uh, and draft attack plans based on those and see what sticks. I think uh, that is perhaps what Bernays is thinking, right? It would be it'd be an interesting experiment just to draft one attack based on the stereotype of the target and another counterattack based on various other possible views that are specifically not the stereotype and see which ones, you know, float to the top. Perhaps they've done this, right? These public relations people because according to Bernays, they have been experimenting on us, right? At least since hundred years ago, maybe they, there was a window where they stopped. I don't know, because this book was written a hundred years ago. So they started. I can't imagine why they would stop, considering they're still around today. So, but my uh, my willing to experiment with uh, manipulation and exploit targets uh, demonstrates what a uh, slippery precipice from the moral high ground to being, uh, you know, just another PR uh, shitbag. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be interesting to see if, you know, if you did a campaign based on stereotype, but then who stereotype, right? Because there isn't, if there was one stereotype, then that would assume that that stereotype, you know, broad stereotype is true if many people have it, which it isn't, right, if it's a stereotype. But it doesn't mean it's false. Just because something's a stereotype doesn't mean it's wrong, right? It's the same as the fallacy fallacy. Just because something's a logical fallacy doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means the way they fat got to it was wrong. So, you know, you want to mess around uh, with people's senses. I don't know the, uh, what was that called? The sensorium. Sensorium. You know, our, our perception of reality via our senses. Right? That's a great, great term. So our perception of reality is not real. It's just a, a sensorium of whatever four-dimensional construct we create in our skull by our mind's interpretation of data from our sensors and our senses, you know, hearing, smell, taste, touch, movement, direction, orientation, whatever we experience from our meat bag. I've heard this called sensorium. And I think that is a great term. It, it implies our perceptions can be fooled and compounded with imperfect reasoning. What, uh, you know, we think is true though convincing to us, can go sideways very quickly if it is not. And if we are arrogant assholes, we are not likely to correct it. <laughs> so this is uh, 
And, and of course, we know manipulation exists, right? We, we know illusions exist. We know we can be duped. We know sometimes what we think is true is wrong. doesn't matter how true it feels, it may still be wrong. When you think about how complex our DNA is, it's quite mind-blowing to think that it doesn't just produce us, you know, or, or program us as babies and start, you know, telling us to grow fingers and arms and hearts and everything else. It controls everything, including our aging and our, our predisposition to behaviors in, in complex systems. All that crap is programmed into that microscopic group in the nucleus of our first cell. So the, the level of neuroplasticity we will have at 80 years old is in there from the moment of our inception. It's just mind-blowing. And perhaps not just us, but, you know, the, our, gen, our uh, offspring. So it's like generations later, right? It's, it's amazing. So the, uh, the, the and also the genetic programming for our immune system. It's, it's not just for all viruses our ancestors have encountered but for all viruses that are possible to encounter, including ones our line may encounter a million years in the future. It is, it's, it is mind-boggling. You may not believe me, but I suggest you research that with our immune system. It is incredible. Anyway, our, our sensorium is fallible. You have to wonder if Bernays started off innocently and morphed into the public relations monster, monster, Monster. Well, monster is actually a good term. You know, again, with the uh, nature nurture question, did he, was he turned into this monster or was he, uh, or was he uh, hardwired perhaps generations ago by his ancestors' DNA to become this monster? <laughs> you know, my uh, portmanteau of monster and minister, right? He's a preacher of monstrous things. So he's a monster. <laughs> I like that. Hope I remember it. So I suppose that the, the whole point of this, the, that is moot, right? It, it doesn't really matter if he was, but it does, I guess, if we were looking to try to prevent these things from happening in the future. But I'm not suggesting that we modify people's DNA to stop them from happening. I suggest more along the lines of we being aware of the techniques and when we see it, you know. For us, the, uh, you know, to have the best chance of survival, we need to have the most accurate data if our clunky sensorium is to project an accurate representation of objective reality. And I don't think anybody wants to have a false projection in our sensorium of what reality actually is. It's scary to think some people argue there is no objective reality. That can't be to your advantage, can it? Right? So Bernays writes, um, unless maybe it's some kind of a, like a PTR or a traumatic thing, right? So people shut off. And that's some kind of a defensive, but that's only short term, right? They, they can't believe something's happening, maybe to protect their brain. I don't know. It gets all spooky when traumatic things happen to people. But then uh, trauma is a sliding scale, right? Some people do not find things traumatic. Anyways, but Bernays writes, PR must create in the public mind the close relationship between the client and a number of ideas the client desires to stand for in the public mind. He's calling for a fallacious appeal of association for the perception of his client, which is just advertising manipulation. The true PR is the manipulation of the target's mind, all while the client is anonymous. Of course, using association propaganda, you know, putting somebody side by side juxtaposition or right, the association, you know what I mean, uh, of some 
Joker on a poster with words like brave, prestigious, honorable, etc. has worked on naive fools in the past and probably still today. It's, you know, you just put these, their face with a word next to it, right? I should do that. I should put my picture and uh, <laughs> I think I will with brave, prestigious, honorable. I'm going to start posting them on social media just with me looking off into the distance. <laughs> So today, propaganda isn't so much, and I think that if I did that, that might be sort of a uh, a uh, sarcastic, a what's the word? Mm, yeah, sarcastic, I guess. No, uh, parodying it is a good way of exposing it, right? You make a parody of something, and you people see, oh, they, they take a step back, and they realize when they see it, in in the and you know when it's people are intentionally trying to use it for you know actual effect instead of just joking. I don't know. Yeah, I think that might be a good idea. So today, propaganda isn't so much promoting an individual, which it still does, as much as it's evolved to an ideological war, uh, promotion of one thought and attack on reasoning, questioning, freedom, right? The, the actual values of science are all being challenged and used as manipulative tools, well, not the values of science, but the word science is used, which is attacking the actual values of science, which is unreal to think they're using the term science to actually attack the values of which science stands for. This Orwellian inversion doublespeak stuff is just mind-blowing when you start seeing it. You're like, wow, they're actually using the term science, right? The science is settled, right? That is the most anti-science thing you could come up with, right? It is Science is always questioning, what if, what if, what is this? That's, what's the evidence? That's not settled. It's not dogma. And yet that's what they're doing. They're trying to promote science as dogma. And there's a lot of asshole subhumans in science who uh, are unwilling to change their stances and, and follow the dogma because they're, they're fake idiots. They're losers. They're, they're, they're actually faking. They, they, they went through uh, university. They've forgotten all the uh, fundamentals that they were taught, if they were even taught basic fundamentals of reasoning. And uh, now they're just trying to fake it and get their paycheck and go golfing and, and you know, whatever, right? So... There are a lot of frauds. In fact, I would venture to say the majority of our society, the majority, are fakers. They would say, fake it till you make it. Well, some of those people who fake it, when they make it, they're still faking it, right? They made it, but they're still fakers. They're frauds. You know, the the hubris. Now, some of it might be artificial hubris. They might be pretending to know. But the problem is when they drink the Kool-Aid and they start believing that they know when, in fact, they don't. And this is critical thinking 101, right? thinking that you know something that you don't. And this is the stuff they should be... Ugh. Anyways. You think it's, it's truly disgusting, you know, that they use the, the name of science to attack the very principles of it. Just anyways. So what's more wor worrisome is that it has great effect on our colleagues who are apparently, you know, fucking morons, you know, who didn't learn the shit or maybe they did, right? So I'm repeating myself here, but, oh, I know all about those. When you when you argue, I had a, a conversation with someone who is a, uh, a researcher uh, fairly recently, and uh, they were demonstrating, they were talking, and they were using logical fallacies. And so I started mentioning the logical fallacies, and their response was, oh, I know all about those, right? Someone with their, their masters, right? But... But 
Oh, I know all about those, but. There is no but. If you're falling for logical fallacies, there's no but afterwards, right? But I want to believe the science. Well, it's not the science, and you shouldn't want to believe it. It has nothing to do with your belief. It's, it's what can be proved or not proved. Anyways, so wanting to believe the science, right? It, it means you do not want to bias the conclusion with what you want. Like that is, you know, fundamental stuff, right? You sh- who cares what you want to believe? You know, it doesn't matter what you want to believe. So this is it's so fundamental in science, yet experts in science still do not follow the process. If you're pro, if you're if you're pro science, you must believe in the process, which you know obviously includes questioning, even if the result is not what you would like. Right? You would not stand assertions and hollow claims in the name of science, or or base your your decisions on fear. And important decisions is especially not the time to allow logical fallacies fallacies to distort our judgment. It boils down to not being aware that best guesses are not facts. Again, the there are so many fakers. People are faking it, right? In fucking... Anyways. So some act like they, they still know everything that they were ever taught, right? Diplomas and degrees. They should have a best before date you know, say three years, you know, before an exam is required to keep them up to date. And the the minimum uh, to pass should be 100% to renew. If you are in your field, you need to get 100% on that exam to pass. If you don't know that, you need to go back for refreshers. But the point is moot, you know, with useless garbage degrees and horrible professors and the, the academia's comp- compromise. So you're just, you're, uh, reestablishing garbage, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So it doesn't matter if they get 100% on their uh, tests if the information is garbage, right? You've learned 100% of the the propaganda. Well, great for you. Kudos, right? So we need um, ideological defense, right? This is the whole point of science. Science is supposed to protect us ideologically, you know, against, uh, you know, these false uh, ideas, (laughs) you know, like anything in the soft sciences or the arts, right? Now that I do, yeah, I think about it, just because, you know, some idiot has a degree does not mean they were taught the scientific method, valid reason, or, or logical fallacies, right? The, uh, the idiotic theory put forward by Marx is, of course, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. There is no logic that indicates thesis plus antithesis in any way equals truth. Otherwise, we would just plug everything into this retarded algorithm and all problems of science would be solved. That people in university today believe this demonstrates just how far off the tracks academia is. Bernays writes that a good PR man, like a good reporter, can usually be developed no matter how many obstacles are in the way. So what exactly does he mean by obstacles? Morals? A conscience? A soul? (laughs) What obstacles does he mean? So he writes, another trick is to use prominent people who embody the stereotype 
the PR want to associate with the client or data or idea. So a fallacious appeal to association and a fallacious appeal to celebrity. So you need a celebrity who embodies the ideal that they're trying to associate with. So if we're trying to find, uh, associate with, you know, healthy people, you know, we can, we can get athletes, you know, we can have uh, uh, Olympic heroes on our box of Wheaties. So we're associating, right? This is, you know, basic stuff, but it goes beyond that when it gets into to public relations. It's not just the stereotype of the athlete. So you put a, a famous you know, musician's name as a model of a guitar, and you associate wealthy people with your hotel, you know, famous investors with your brand of pen or whatever it is, right? You, you paid off doctors with your untested and potential dangerous gene therapy, right? So these, these doctors are associated. So now the, the idiot public is supposed to fall for the, the association of doctor, right? So now the stereotype of doctor, when it's the specific doctor who's been compromised by, you know, funding or whichever, whatever mechanism has compromised him. So just because they're a doctor doesn't mean they're telling the truth. People are fucking liars. It doesn't matter what job they have. There are people that are frauds in every field, people that are faking, you know, sure you have tests. And I'm sure there's a certain level of competency, you know, you have to be able to name certain bones. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're absolute total frauds, like that don't know anything. I'm not, I'm not going that far, but some perhaps are. So another shtick is to, according to Bernays, right, is to have a contest where the judges uh, are someone the contestants would want to meet in order to draw out more contestants. This was uh, written almost a century before American Idol and those types of celebrity judge shows. So the targets are, are well, there's different levels of target, right? The, the one level of target are the people who are lining up to sing, right? The, the contestants, that's one strata of target. And that strata of target is targeted to target the ultimate target, who are the viewers, and those viewers are just targeted to target the, I guess they're not the ultimate one because there's one more than that, which is the advertisers. So they want the advertisers' money. How do you get advertisers' money? We need to have eyeballs. How do you get lots of eyeballs? We need to have some kind of a competition with with a lot of people. And, you know, the law of probability is the more people you get, the better people you're going to have, right? With the bell curve, you're going to have some that are good. So you have 10 people, you might get one. You might not. You have a million people. You're gonna you're bound to have some good singers. So how do we get a lot of people to audition? We get a lot of people to audition because we need they want we want them to give them something that they want, which is to meet a celebrity. So all those now we'll get some celebrities. Those celebrities are the bait to draw in the the contestants. The contestants are the uh, the amusement to draw the uh, the audience. The audience is there to draw the advertisers, and they, so the ultimate thing is purely for whoever's organizing this, right? The people in the shadows. We don't even know who they are. Their goal is to get money from the advertisers. That's it. That's the meat and potatoes of the whole mechanism behind the entertainment shows like that, right? According to Bernays, this is a specific tactic that he wrote about in 1923. So uh, Bernays claims the contest is really to promote the client issue 
or brand. So he's saying it's not even about the money for the advertising. He's saying it's to promote an issue or brand or an idea, right? And the contestants are to propagate that message through the sales competition or something along those lines. So today it's cell phone voting and various gags along those lines, right? So there are multiple layers of trying to get other people involved in advertising. Well, let's get the cell phone companies involved. So, you know, uh, whatever brand, you know, cell phone company, use their phones and, and, and text us, you know, or whatever, you know, idiotic crap, right? So they're, they're trying to layer more and more layers of garbage on top of everything, right? So there, there are two tiers of targets, in Bernays' contest, right, the content, contestants and the public. The complexity of this scam would surely be labeled a conspiracy theory if it were not coming from Edward Bernays himself, right? I'm showing the model. So even though it, it uh, he came up with the, the roadmap uh, for public relations or whoever grifters want to use this, that I'm repeating his roadmap makes me a target for the conspiracy theory tag, not him, which is pretty interesting. So the guy who came up with it is the father of public relations. He's untouchable. But if you repeat what, what he says, you're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so Bernays summarizes his techniques as appeals to desires or appeals to instinct. So whenever you hear the word appeals, right, you're appealing to something. Now, it doesn't mean always every appeal is false, but the appeals are used off it in uh, logical fallacies. The goal is to make, um, make it easy for the target to pick the narrative out of the noise. So he must overcome the public's tendency to uh, flicker and relax, right? how they refer to it, to flicker and relax, and then relax. He needs to keep their attention long enough for the narrative to stick. So that's really, I'm going to say that again because it's really important. The goal is for the target to pick the narrative out of the noise. It's the same with everything, right? Any kind of messaging, any kind of advertising, um, public relations. So how do you cut through that noise? How do you get your signal louder? He must do to the public mind what the newspapers accomplish with their headlines. He must force himself onto the unwitting public's mind to the point that they do not forget. So Bernays writes, abstract discussions and heavy facts are the groundwork of his involved theory or analysis, but they cannot be given to the public until they are simplified and dramatized. The refinements of reason and the shadings of emotion cannot reach a considerable public. So by me, my podcast here, I am perhaps heavy with facts and uh, involved theory perhaps, and analysis. I'm definitely in analyzing these books, doing deep dives. So this is something that Bernays says uh, cannot be given to the public until I simplify it and dramatize it. So I need to make it a drama, right? So this is sounding like I need to use agitprop, right? I need to make a little story and, and, and show what he's saying in stories, but then it weakens it, right? Because you're I would assume it weakens it. Maybe this is what his point is, that it's more powerful to dramatize it, 
right? It's saying it just outright, people just whoosh, washes over them. But if you tell it to them in a dramatized version, they're more apt to listen. And perhaps some pink pill, right? A little bit, it will go in, they might like, open up their mind, a little crack of light. I don't know. But he says, the refinements of reason and the shadings of emotion. Well, I'm trying to not be emotional. I'm trying to use reason to keep people's minds not, you know, getting all worked up, right? So it cannot reach a considerable public. Does he mean considerable as in, uh, you know, a vast volume of people? Or does he mean considerable public as in those who consider things, the thinkers? It's... uh, could be interpreted either way, right? So he he nails news with his when he writes, when an appeal to the instinct uh, can be made so powerful as to secure the acceptance in spite of competitive interests, it can aptly be called news. So news is not facts or data; it is powerful appeal to instinct. Bernays is only exposing this as public relations is the creator of news for whatever medium he chooses to transmit his ideas. The, uh, the shysters behind the news are, according to, uh, you know, to, Ber- to Bernays, uh, PR and their clients. So those are the people, according to Bernays, who are actually behind the news, public relations and big money. So Bernays goes on like a, a Marxist in, uh, at a rally in some third world uh, jungle, <laughs> right? Not only does uh, PR create the news, it is his duty to create news no matter what the medium. <laughs> it's the mechanism of news interest which gives him an opportunity to make his idea travel and to get favorable reaction from the instincts to which he happens to appeal. Notice the the dehumanization of the targets yet again. It's not innocent, exploitable people he's targeting, just some abstract instincts he's appealing to. He's just appealing to the instincts. (laughs) So Bernays continues, in order to appeal to the instincts and fundamental emotions of the public, PR must create news around his ideas. So it's not a matter of just creating a single story to try to give the, the narrative. He must, he must create create news around his idea. So not just one point, it has to be like a, a mold, right? It's not just a single mushroom. You have to have mold all around it, right, for the public to, to believe it, to make it more believable. So this news apparatus, you know, apparently uh, hungry for news, will just scoop it up and run with it for free. This is the implication that Bernays is saying. Well, maybe they, not so much, maybe they're just owned, right? PR must lift startling facts from his subject and present them as news. He must isolate ideas and develop them into events so that they can be more readily understood by the idiot public so that they can claim attention as news. I added the idiot public in there. (laughs) Bernays then uh, juxtaposes the headline with the comic strip, essentially calling them both memes. 
The headline is a compact, vivid simplification of complicated issues. And the comic strip provides a visual image which takes place of abstract thought. Mm, powerful words, powerful concept for a manipulator, right? The meme, the, con the, 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 the visual image which takes place of abstract thought. Not that it promotes or encourages, it takes place. So you are in control as the meme artist to control what the public actually thinks, their abstract thought. And this is the goal of PR, to lift out the important and interesting and the easily understandable points in order to create interest. So important is subjective, important in the context of what? Important in the context of what your big money client wants. That is what's important, not the truth, not what's in the best interest of the public, but what's important to the client. So, and also what is interesting. So now what's important to the client has to be made interesting to the idiot public. And it also has to be made easily understandable. <laughs> so there you go. You got to dumb it down, make it interesting to the idiots and right. And, and, and stress or frame it in a way that it's, that they understand what's important to your client. Now what, now what's important to them. The, you know, he's, he, I need to translate this perhaps a bit, you know, the, uh, headlines are not just simplifications. They can be, but they can also be ambiguous, you know, where one interpretation is shocking while the other interpretation, while probably the truth is mundane. Right. This this appears to be the intentional part of the the author of the headline. Whoa, what's that say? Then you read the first paragraph of the article and you're like, oh, no, they just mean this. But they you think, well, is it my fault that I misinterpreted that? No, it's clickbait, right? It's a it's an art form. You know, it's it's intentionally meant to be misleading. The natural interpretation versus literal interpretation. They always toy with that. That's that's the water where they swim, that's the air that they breathe, right? Manipulation of interpretations, the natural versus the literal. You could always, Mott and Bailey, oh no, that's not what we meant. We meant this way. As long as you can potentially interpret it a certain way, right? So, but you know, they they said something with, which they know can be interpreted this way, right? Or another way, the, the clickbaity way. So even even to the point of straight up disinformation and lies. So the, the naive among us might think, oh, they mistakenly oversimplified it to the point of error. They can't include everything in the headline. No, they can't, but they can certainly word it to be interpreted a little more accurately, right? If the public misinterprets it, that's their problem, right? No, it's not their problem. It's, it's your intention. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Bernays did, didn't call them memes, uh, but this is essentially what he's talking about. You know, memes are a great aid to visualize a complex concept, right? A picture is worth a thousand words, though like words, they can easily convey something that appears to be true, like a stereotype, but is false, or it can be interpreted in different ways. And that's the thing with communication. Sometimes 
people intention or, or or not intentionally, but they write something, and it's honestly misinterpreted, right? It's it's they don't want people to uh, interpret it the way they did. They actually wanted them to interpret it the way uh, another way, right? So there's there's two different sides to this. There's sloppy writing or or, or just weak communication, and the thing is. To be more accurate, the more wordy, the more verbose, right, you have to be. And uh, when you say things really short and succinctly, often it's it triggers stereotype and and false. And that's that's the thing, right? I'm not doing the depth of political satire or memes justice. There are people who study them for years and still cannot do them very well. It might be something worth looking into as it's a very powerful tool to convey messages, which can be true or false, and yet appear very true to the exploitable. Or perhaps the, well, I guess if, if it's appearing true to you and it's not, you are therefore exploitable. As I interpret Bernays, uh, memes are the heart of PR. They're based on stereotypical uh, false interpretations like uh, a lot of these political satirists, it's like, oh, ho, ho, that's funny because it's true. No, it's not true. It's funny because it can be interpreted as a stereotype. People seem to think just because, you know, oh, it's it's, it's funny because it's true is true. It's not true, right? It's not. Just because something's funny and you think it might be true doesn't make it true, right? It doesn't make it deeply, fundamentally true. Oh, it's true. It's funny. Oh, ho, 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 right? I could think of the um, people making jokes about round earthers back in the day. Of course the world's flat. It's so funny, these round earthers, they're such idiots. <laughs> so just because something can be uh, made into a joke and funny doesn't mean it's true. right? Doesn't mean it's even based on truth. It's just based on the one interpretation or perception, which can be completely false. The key point... Uh, I guess, is that it's easily understandable. Now, again, understandable may not be, it's, it's understandable to be true, but to anyone who thinks about this for a minute, the, the complexity of things, the, the nuanced, you know, may not be accurately dumbed down to a meme or a joke, right? <laughs> Simplistic views. In fact, this is, this is, of course, a common tactic of the manipulator. Dumb down the opponent's point and then tack, attack that uh, dumbed-down version. This is, of course, a version of the straw man fallacy. It's often accompanied uh, with, uh, so what you're saying is, or what they're really saying, right? Or, uh, you know, when somebody gives a speech, they said this, which is their interpretation, right? They're repeating what they think you meant, but not what you actually said. They're not quoting you. Right? They, they misquote you and they misinterpret and then they report their false interpretations of what you actually said. This is something you see often. I noticed that a lot more when, uh, when Trump started doing speeches and was running for president. Uh, I would watch the video of his you know, speeches he would talk and then I'd watch how the news reported on him. I'm like, whoa, that is not what he said. That is wow, right? And then your eyes are like, whoa, opened up a little bit. So this is a fallacious trap that we all might fall into, right? Though some may use it intentionally, 
though it's it's very common for us to misinterpret someone's point when it's honest. You know, we we honestly misinterpret, and they're honestly trying to convey the truth. This is common, right? Yeah, it's communication. This happens. So I've been guilty of thinking, you know, someone means X when they actually mean Y. This happens all the time. You gotta, oh whoa whoa whoa, I gotta back up here. I thought they meant that. Oh, they didn't actually mean that. They meant they meant this. I I interpreted it a certain way, and it was wrong which is not a, you know, horrible thing that ha- this is things that happen. It doesn't mean you're intentionally doing it, but you just got to watch out for it, right? And it's so common that we need to be always watching out for it. You're interpreting something, especially when people it's an emotional thing. People interpret things and they start getting emotional about it. And and then you realize, "Oh, whoa, whoa, that's not what they meant." Yet you're still all worked up and it's kind of hard to pull yourself back. So what are Bernays points to making a good meme? This is pretty powerful stuff, if it's true. But according to him, you dig out the interesting points. They may not be facts, and it's irrelevant if they are. And then the important points to the client. So the interesting points to the idiot public, the important points to the client, and then you make it easily understandable. Now, that doesn't mean you make it more accurate, you just make it more understandable. So Bernays quotes the Dick Lippmann, Walter Lippmann, who pretty much pushes the same point about memes. They are best remembered by a physical uh, sign, and therefore the human qualities we tend to ascribe to the names of impressions themselves tend to be visualized in physical metaphors. Lippmann then uses the uh, the stereotype of England of being, um, what's his face, John Bull, who was jovial, fat, not too clever, but well able to take care of himself. So this character is not common today. I don't know too many people who know of the John Bull stereotype of England. I'm sure there are people that do. Um, though, you know, not mentioned specifically, Characters are uh, definitely part of the meme toolbox. When he, uh, you know, if you think of um, old propaganda that shows, you know, uh, you know, the Negro, right, acting this way, right, these, it, obviously that's not how all black people are or even were, or possibly there may not even have been one specifically like that, that character that somebody had drawn, drawn back in the, the days, right, with the whole, uh, you know, blackface stuff, right? So he then gives other examples. Yeah, migration can be a meandering river or a devastating flood. So his point is how you can interpret it, right? So you can interpret it as a meandering river or you can interpret it as a devastating flood, right? Courage can be uh, a rock or, or oppression as the, the rack under the, the harrow. So uh, you're like, what the hell is he talking about? A rack? Under the harrow, right? So that, that's kind of an old expression. So a harrow is a piece of farm equipment with a lot of big teeth for breaking up the topsoil. I wouldn't meet, uh, immediately equate oppression with being under the harrow. That's more uh, gruesome uh, murder and dismemberment. So, you know, getting run over by uh, farm equipment. I think it goes back to that uh, poem by Rudyard Kipling. The toad beneath the harrow knows where every separate tooth point goes. 
the butterfly upon the road preaches contentment to that toad. <laughs> so there's a good metaphor for the, the silver spoon, uh, rich kids, uh, you know, being the butterfly and the, uh, perhaps the working class being the toad, I assume, or anyway, the people being oppressed, whoever they happen to be, they know where every point is, right? And the, the people who are not being oppressed or who uh, 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 go along with it, you know, who are not facing any hardships, preach contentment to those toads, right? We have it easy. No, you have it easy, right? It's funny how that expression has died away, the toad, uh, or the, what do they call it, the, the rack under the harrow. The toad is oppressed and the butterfly is not, but we do not want to discuss oppression, right? We do not want to discuss about the people, the wealthy who are not oppressed and the toads who are, right? We don't want the, the, the public schmucks thinking in those terms. Bernays writes that beyond the five points, PR must bring, one, his capacity to crystallize obscure tendencies of the public mind before they have reached definite expression, and two, use his ability to create those symbols to which the public is ready to respond, find those stereotypes, and bring favorable responses. So I want to clear, uh, he, he literally uses these words, he used the words stereotypes. I'm not, you know, adding that. This is Bernays' words. <laughs> he says stereotypes. So he sums up this whole section with uh, the appeal to the instincts and the universal desires is the basic method through which he produces his results. PR meme 101 appeal to the instincts and desires and use stereotypes. But don't forget to dumb it down to the point that the idiot schmucks can understand it because the public are too stupid to understand anything that isn't dumbed down. So it's curious that Bernays would even have the section titled Ethical Relations, but it's not surprising that it would be at the back of his book. <laughs> So his penultimate chapter is uh, a consideration of the press and other mediums of communication in the relation to public relations. The most important medium used for PR convenience, conveyance is the press, according to Bernays. Though PR has a distinct relationship with the movies, music, lecture platform, schools, the stage, theater, advertising, word of mouth, and of course, the legislative chamber. The legislative chamber is used for public relations, which is pretty obvious to those who know it, but for those who don't, they might find that as a little bit surprising. <laughs> what? You're saying the legislation, legislative chambers? You're saying it's used for public relations? No. <laughs> he writes, that the journalist may be half amused at the press agent and they appreciate the value of the service that public relations gives them. So far, no ethics. <laughs> to the newspaper, PR serves as a purveyor of news. Purveyor is one who spreads or promotes an idea or view. 
So wouldn't that be the paper and not the public relations? Aren't they the ones who spread it? I guess it's all, you know, interpretation. Who are the ones who are coming up with it? The, the seed, right? So then I guess it wouldn't be PR. It would actually be the money behind PR who are the purveyors of the idea, ultimately. Though purveyor also means one who sells or deals in particular goods. So, well, if there's money exchanged, the, uh, the big money is buying, right? And the PR is just a part of the chain, as is the news media and all the other compromised doctors and uh, experts who are paid off, right, or manipulated. So the implication is news viewing PR as the wholesaler of news. This is, what I think, the, the gist of what he's trying to get to, that the news view public relations as the wholesaler. So you could write articles and send it to the news, and they're not going to publish it. Or you might get an op-ed in if you're uh, politically aligned and publicly outspoken on behalf of whatever regime who uh, owns the newspaper, perhaps. Like in today, and there's a lot of monopolies, right? There's only fewer and fewer people who own. And then we were warned about this over 100 years ago, right, about the monopolies of news media, and it's, it's gotten worse today. And uh, like the, the, the today, this morning in the news, they were talking about this monopoly in Canada of Rogers and uh, who was the other one? They're, they're buying out somebody's or somebody's Rogers and I can't remember that one, but it's going to be two, two big players of who owns the news. And, uh, and, and the news station said, oh, the last challenge is getting the, uh, the, the, some guy in the government, the industry minister or whatever, to approve so that's the last challenge. So shouldn't the news, you know, if they weren't owned by these corporations, shouldn't they be questioning monopoly? Shouldn't they be saying, hey, hold on, there's some concerns here. Um, you know, we do not want a monopoly. Monopolies are bad, and our job is to call truth to power. And our job as journalists is to be calling out any monopolies. Yet that is not exactly what happened. Precisely the opposite. They're like, well, the last challenge. So it was from the perspective of trying to get this deed done, trying to consolidate and have a larger monopoly over the news. This is how our news reports it. So that, that schmuck is just a, a single guy now, the industry minister, whoever the hell it was, I can't remember. So he's the one guy staying against the wave? No, the public are just, you know, milling about in the fields like sheep, you know, perhaps there are some that are upset, but we don't have a venue to uh, air our grievances other than crap like this. And who's listening to this shit? Nobody. So news being defined in this case as anything that sells papers. Truthfulness being inconsequential or unrelated to its newsworthiness. Bernays claims newspapers were originally just vehicles for the editor's opinion. So they were OG blogs, you know, in hard copy, despite their misleading moniker as news, which I kind of agree with, right? If you owned a printing press and you wanted to say things, you would just write the crap you wanted to say, you would print it and you'd give it out to people, right? There's it just, right? There's no uh, law that was controlling anything, right? Or, or, or even uh, ethics or, uh, you know, it was just people would print stuff they want and then they sort of turned into perhaps newspapers, right? So he claims that that evolved to the editorial being secondary to the need for news. Then he oddly uh, quotes some guy called uh, Mr. Given, who claims a paper needs the news printed 
in a pleasing and attractive form as the critical factor of a paper's success. So it's all about aesthetics. It's, it's, it's aesthetic, aesthetics and not content. Aesthetics over content. So maybe that's still around today. Maybe we should have prettier um, podcasts. Maybe I should make my podcast prettier. And it's not the content, right? It's, it's uh, what did he say? needs to be in a pleasing and attractive form. So I need to get some really uh, attractive hoochie in here and have her read uh, my podcasts. <laughs> I guess if you look at um, uh, people's, this is a common thing, what they call it, catfishing on social media. You'll see a lot of the uh, avatars are, you know, these, you know, sexy, beautiful women. Sometimes they actually are the women, but the, the catfishing ones, they're, you know, some... Uh, you know, fat, ugly-looking Russian, perhaps, you know, in, the, you know, the summer. Uh, anyways, and they're just trying to catfish you, right? Like, it could actually be a woman. I don't want to say that all attractive women uh, avatars are not them, but that definitely the catfish or the, the people that try to tr- uh, track you or trip you up are, uh, you know, uh, they try to bait you. Right, they could be, you know, send me money. You know, I need to, I need to leave Russia. I need to come to Canada or United States. Give me money, send me money, and I will come and be your wife. You know, here's my picture. This is what I look like, isn't it? And it's not even her, just some, you know, other somebody else, right? And you stupid, uh, lonely, uh, exploitable morons are like, oh, I'm gonna help this girl. I'm gonna send her some money, and then she's gonna be my wife. <laughs> like, fuck, people are that stupid, right? Anyways, so. Uh, so that's the point, though, that the, those guys were using the manipulative techniques uh, of Bernays, right? Uh, having the avatars in a in a pleasing and attractive form as, as a critical factor. Which I agree, it's a critical factor for that grift, right? For their for that uh, catfishing to succeed. So that that's an example of where it actually works. Now, this is not good for anybody other than the grifters, but this is who he's writing for. He's writing, Bernays is writing for the grifters, for the the uh, Russian catfishers or whoever the people are behind that, right? I have no idea what country, I'm just assuming Russia because we're always told Russia, Russia, Russia. They could be from, you know, uh, Nigeria, or they could be from China, they could be from India, they could be from who knows where, right? England. So um, he, uh, he quotes this guy, Will Irwin. Will Irwin who said, news is the main thing, the vital consideration of the newspaper. It is both an intellectual craving and a commercial need to the modern world. This, this, this Irwin dude lays it on thick, right? It has to be a crying primal want to the mind, like the hunger of the body. <laughs> so now you got to recall what these guys are referring to as news is not what you and I naturally interpret as news. So he claims that uh, that a sailor after a long cruise will ask for a newspaper before they ask for fresh fruit, fresh fruit and vegetables. I would argue it's uh, want for knowledge and curiosity that are the primal cognitive hum- hungers and uh, not being exposed to uh, propaganda and PR, right? It, it, having uh, heavily biased opinions of bourgeois socialists jammed into our face. That, that, that's not what the hunger is. The hungry is actually for curiosity. I remember when uh, I was in the uh, the army 
And we came, we were no news. It was just the reserves, but uh, we were we were in the field and there was for, uh, what was it, six weeks or whatever it was, uh, and uh, no news or nothing, right? And then uh, we got back to Toronto. Uh, we took a cab. Anyways, uh, so we were craving for newspapers. We wanted to know what's going on in the world. We had no idea what was going on, right? We didn't have cell phones or anything. Was, so there was that, I understand what he's talking about. There was that crave for information and we did crave newspapers. It wasn't before fresh fruit. I mean, we were well-fed, I guess. So <laughs> we weren't sailors. Perhaps if we were sailors, it might've been a bit of a different situation. I don't know, but definitely wasn't curious or uh, hunger for propaganda or heavily biased opinions of the bourgeois socialist. It was, what's going on? That kind of news. What's happened, right? You know, what's been blown up <laughs> or whatever, you know, who's died, who's, who's, you know, whatever, right? What's, what's news? He then uses an extraordinary anomaly as evidence of the normal behavior of people during a disaster. So that should give you red flags, right? During an uh, abnormal situation, that is not normal behavior for people because normal behavior for people happen in normal circumstances. If it's not a normal circumstance, it's not going to be the normal behavior, right? You will respond differently in different circumstances. So and we will, um, we will, uh, we're going to behave differently if our survival depends on things, right? I guess our survival depends on things daily, but we're not at threat. There's no, it's not threat level midnight, right? So knowing, uh, you know, where to find first aid or, or, you know, available facts, you know, to base our decisions on is critical. That is what people are craving in, you know, these, these situations, not propaganda and news or news in terms of how these guys are referring to it as in what the client wants them to know, right? Not that news, but actual news. It's not surprising that people in, you know, these situations would have a strong desire, you know, for information, even rumor mill. Any information is better than no information. And that's what these manipulators realize. Whoa, if they don't have any information, we can tell them anything and they'll believe the garbage, right? They don't have time to verify or whatever. So, it's not evidence of normal daily behavior, but this idiot is implying despite the disaster, people still crave news when the opposite is more likely. It's because of the disaster that people crave the uh, news, any news, right? Common sense. There's a tornado that hit. What's the news? Are these people safe? What houses were hit, right? It's not, you know, Despite the disaster, oh, now there was a tornado that hit. Well, despite the tornado, I want to find out what happened. No, it's because there was a tornado, right? So uh, he writes, uh, Bernays does, it is, besides the church, our principal outlook on the higher intelligence. What the fuck? The higher intelligence. So dirtbag reporters are of higher intelligence. Or does he mean the intelligence we haven't yet attained? I don't know. As the, the, the in intelligence reports or, or gathered intel, like what's he talking about? No, he means smarts, right? You dummies. He writes, the, the tedious business of teaching reading at public schools has become chiefly a training to read newspapers. <laughs> so we're, who's behind our education system then? Hmm. If that if that's true, we must go far up in the scale of culture before we find an intellectual equipment 
more a debtor of the formal education of school and college than to the haphazard education of news. <laughs> Quote. So, one, news is not education. Two, up the scale of culture? Fuck you. Three, intellectual equipment more indebted to formal education than news is a false premise as news is not education. Today we know education is a lifelong research and, uh, you know, reading critically outside of our formal education amounts to way more than propaganda from the news. In fact, I shouldn't say way more as propaganda is negative. It counters our education. It counters our intelligence. It makes us less intelligent if intelligence is based on, you know, your knowledge of truth, right? Being fed lies, right? And if you believe those lies, that steers you in the opposite direction of actual intelligence. The majority of our society are getting the bulk of their education from news media, right? If that's the case, we are in serious trouble. Thankfully, I think a lot of people don't read uh, the newspapers anymore and uh, or believe the news media. But, uh, I mean, you still have to, right? Because there's still information that is given out. So you still have to sift through, but you have to be very critical. You know, isn't it odd that, uh, that Bernays would ignore the, the value of education in books in a book? So he's writing this book and he's shitting on the value of reading books in a book. So <laughs> it's, I don't know, maybe that one went over his head. I don't know. Perhaps he figured his book would uh, add nothing to anyone's intellect and therefore just discounted it because he knows it's just a piece of garbage, right? Perhaps he's implying that his book is part of formal education. Maybe that's what he's thinking, right? Though... Uh, you know, that way he might, uh, you know, be blowing smoke up the reader's ass by implying anyone that reads this book must therefore be far up the scale of culture. Would a PR man like Bernays appeal to the vanity and ego of his target audience in a, chair, in a, in a, uh, in a chapter about ethics? <laughs> Which we still haven't had any yet so far, right? So when Bernays refers to news, he must be referring to the content that is created by public relations, since that is how he defines it. We, of course, know not all news is created by public relations. Not all news is public relations, and not all public relations is news. You know, it's a it's an overlapping Venn diagram, and I'm not even sure if any public relations is, is news, you know, uh, it probably is, but uh, as, it's not as much, I don't think, as Bernays claims, or perhaps it's more. Maybe I'm still really naive to, you know, the news media. I know there's a lot of lies, but I, I'm not sure to what extent some of the stuff I might believe is bogus. But Bernays is including his public relations news creations as news. So are we supposed to forget, you know, what Bernays just said earlier, right? Bernays gives an anecdote of a uh, paper in Philadelphia, the North American, that published pro-local option 
news. Now you might think, what's local option? Well, this was back in Prohibition. So local option uh, was, you know, whether to uh, control whether you could sell alcohol or not, right? The local option. You could locally decide, I guess, maybe uh, municipalities, perhaps. I'm not sure, but, you know, Prohibition started in 1920, and I think it ended in 1933, and this book was written in 1923. There's still, you know, talk of perhaps, I didn't, I was unaware when I read this book about anything called the local option. I thought it was just a federal mandate that no alcohol was allowed to be sold, but I guess perhaps in the earlier days, according to this, there was, you know, talk of local options, or maybe it was mandated and there were just people talking of local option, having the illusion of control over their, uh, them themselves, but I don't know. I'm I'm assuming prohibition was phased in, like it sounds like it to me, as as the it was a lobby of brewers who threatened the newspaper to stop printing news of local option victories, or they will pull their advertising. So local option, I guess, interpreted as in local option to cancel or to prohibit the sale of alcohol, not the local option. To right, because it's funny when you think local option, it's just like truth, it's as true, right? So that means as true means or as false means the same thing, right? It's is, is it true or is it not? It's a, it's the same scale of truth and false. One extreme, it's as true. Where is it on the scale of truth and false? That's one scale, just like uh, option is one scale. You have the option to do it or you have the option to not do it. So to say it's it's an option, well. Which, right, you, are you arguing for the choice? Are you arguing for to do it? Are you arguing for not to do it? So there's three things you could be arguing. The choice to do it, to do it, or not to do it. Right? So anyways, the point was, I guess, here that the, the local option was to prohibit the sales of alcohol as the lobby of brewers threatened the paper to stop printing local victories of the local option, or they're going to pull their advertising. So we can, you know, interpret that's what it means. So coincidentally, the uh, Philadelphia North American stopped publishing two years after Bernays wrote this book. So we could see what happened. They they kept printing their uh, government propaganda of local option to prohibit and control and oppress the people. And the brewers pulled their funding and the newspaper went belly up. I know this is, could be causation correlation. These are things that happened, Right. So whether uh, will the one thing cause the other, I can't say for certain. But, but uh, we can assume that the newspaper uh, declined the ultimatum. <laughs> well, likely, anyways. So Bernays, it is because he acts as the purveyor of truthful, accurate, and verifiable news to the press that the conscientious and successful counsel on public relations is looked upon with favor by the journalist. What a load of shit. So it would be better if Bernays did not speak for journalists. But since they tend to be as much as uh, much of D-bags as he is, that the point is moot. So it doesn't matter what source one hears a lie from, it is still a lie. Though there may be a uh, metadata, you know, from who was lying and why they are lying. But uh, Bernays finally starts talking about ethics. So what does he say? He mentions a code of ethics adopted in D.C., but doesn't bother mentioning any of the garbage that's in this code. It's just that there is a code. 
it, no one seems to follow or, or bother reading as, you know, or definitely, you know, bother repeating, right? They're not going to, not only are they not going to read it or follow it, they're not going to repeat it because he's not repeating. He's just saying that there is one. So this is a meta, right? Public relations code of ethics uh, is just that important, right? We, we, we don't bother even repeating it. So I'm glad to see Bernays uh, refresh the point that uh, understanding uh, what news is is key to public relations since he not only supplies the news, he creates the news. The function as the creator of news is even more important than his others. The function as the creator of news is more important than his others. So his other functions. I thought his, his, so the creating the news is his most important function. I thought his most important function was to convey the message or the, uh, the, the, yeah, the message of his client. No, 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 no. The function as the creator of news is even more important than his others. That means all others. So what are his other functions, right? To get his client's narrative cross across to the to the idiot masses, right? Creating news is even more important than what his client is paying him to do. Isn't that a bit odd, right? He writes, It has always been interesting to me that a concise, comprehensive definition of the news has never been written. He goes on to say, it's as difficult to define as some of the abstruse concepts of the metaphysician, like space, time, or reality. <laughs> so, of course, abstruse means difficult to understand. While metaphysics does study space, time, and reality, it is poo-pooed as non-science due to the repeatability issues. But under that umbrella, theoretical physics, 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 and unproven postulates in math would also be metaphysics, which are considered uh, valid science today, even though they are unproven and perhaps unprovable, right? When you get these theoretical constructs like um, dark matter, it's, 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 that is pseudoscience. Dark energy, pseudoscience. A lot of these unproven uh, postulates in math, they're pseudo. Uh, math. They're, they're meta math. They're not actual math, right? Bernays associates news with metaphysics perhaps to make it um, occult or a dark art. We need defense against the dark arts, right? Perhaps. <laughs> Maybe he's right, given the, the whatever definition of news, you know, as, as whatever uh, he says it is or whatever sells papers. So if, if news is just whatever sells papers, then we definitely need defense against that because it has nothing to do with truth. He claims what news is for one paper may have no interest from another newspaper, which makes sense if whatever sells papers is broken down into whatever sells papers to that paper's audience, which is implied. As we know, there are different interests and different audiences for different papers. For example, the Toronto Star appeals appeals to the irrational, uncritical, arrogant fool who is very exploitable. The exploitable are vulnerable to certain feeders and irrationally closed to others. 
the conditioned flock, and uh, there are obviously many flavors of conditioned flocks, but all share the same cognitive illness of uncritical thought and ignoring or being fooled by logical fallacies. Bernays writes that timelines can be a factor, but it is not sufficient nor necessary to be news. So there you go. He uses the the concept of sufficient and necessary, which are concepts used in critical thinking. What is sufficient versus what is necessary. It's completely different things. Necessary. I have a podcast on that already. So uh, this guy Irwin defines news as a departure from the norm. But a, uh, a criminal act happens daily and is not news, perhaps because they are the norm. So Irwin also says exceptional adhesion to a value, religion, virtue, or truth may also be news. So a servant working hard is not news, but a servant working hard for 50 years and getting recognized for their thrown away life uh, might be news. So perhaps, you know, um, people that uh, consume crime and disorder stories do so because those stories are a departure from their own values and acts or daily life, which you think it would be for, for most of us, right? So Bernays claims these style uh, or these type of people uh, believe the world to be true, sound, and working upward. Crimes and scandals interest him because they disturb his picture of the established order. Perhaps that's the reason why I'm doing this podcast. These manipulative uh, pieces of shit are such a departure from what I feel the world should be or is supposed to be or is implicitly promised to be. So virtues, vices, etc., uh, beyond the norm of the uh, target's values is news, but not beyond their limits of belief. Bernays claims we are educated in established order, and the bulk of people obey that order roughly. <sighs> Again, that goes back to nature and nurture, right? So perhaps fabricated news rests on no other foundation than a departure from the established order together with what the greatest number of people in the target audience will regard as a departure from their established order. Framing ancillary events may make benign news riveting news. Boiler explodes, kills three men, but leaves unharmed baby across the street. Irwin's four points of that make news... We prefer to read what we like. Power for men, affection for women. So there you go. According to this, men and women are not attracted to the same news. So be it, if that's the case. Again, it's a stereotype and an overgeneralization, but perhaps maybe based on uh, data. I don't know. It doesn't say. Interest increases directly with our familiarity with its subject, setting, and dramatis personae. Dramatis personae means characters or uh, people of the drama. Dramatis personae. Our interest in news is in direct ratio to its effect on our personal concerns. 
four, our interests in news increase in direct ratio to the general importance of the persons or activities which it affects. So Bernays quotes uh, Mr. Given, who, uh, who says about a person who gets mentioned in newspapers, he was safe only when he walked the straight and narrow path and kept quiet. <laughs> so I know that statement is complete garbage, right? So they're talking about people who try to avoid, right? Gentlemen avoid the news, right? Avoid being in the news. But I know this statement is complete garbage because while I've I've only been in the news, you know, for benign things like a documentary I produced or six week charity hike that I organized and completed, as well as a few other things, and you know, some just garbage stuff, right? Uh, I I've been saying those are garbage things, but other garbage things. I have a friend who uh, made national news for nothing he did wrong, but due to his job. Now he didn't do anything in his job, but they were trying to smear him. The mainstream uh, media were in full smear mode. It was bizarre to see the false accusations and false framing, the ad hominems, the innuendos, the full toolbox of logical fallacies and bullshit was let loose by the shitbags in mainstream journalism. This guy also has PTSD. He's, he's a different guy from the other guy that I mentioned who also has PTSD. And, and the press attacking him caused his girlfriend to freak out and leave him directly because of the news uh, false assertions and their attacks, their ad hominems. So he had direct negative consequences. Of course, publicly being smeared is one thing, but it, it obviously, you know, affected his, his private life as well. So there are consequences to these shitbags in news media. They are evil scum with no, they're, they're sociopathic, right? So, but I say he dodged a bullet, right? The, the news probably did him a favor as the skank who left him clearly did not have sufficient character to have his back, despite knowing the media attack was bullshit and lies. She knew it was lies and bullshit, but she just didn't want to be associated with the negative press, so she left him way to stand up for your, you know, it passed. It was just a, a news cycle for whatever, a week or two, right? Maybe not even that long. It seemed kind of long, but maybe not. It was a blessing in disguise. You know, her character was exposed in the crucible of fire and it was found wanting. <laughs> and, uh, and what's worse is that most, if not all of the, the news outlets in the country were doing the same thing to him at the same time united in their bogus narrative, which is a bigger issue, right? This wasn't just, you know, one person or one producer or one, you know, a news guy or girl. It was a united front across all fucking mainstream news. It was bizarre, right? United in their lies. That is the, the fourth estate, right? It's supposed to protect democracy from the, uh, the tyrant, you know, the, the, and the, the, the truth to power, right? The bogus leaders. So what I think uh, people think is is secondary to the mode that they used in order to grasp or find that thought. So what people think is secondary to the mode they use to get to that thought, right? Multiple choice tests 
are a conditioning to get the targets used to choosing from someone else's thoughts, someone else's options. Uh, but what, you know, by teaching people what to think, the manipulator is conditioning the target how to think, believe what you're told, you know, think what we tell you to versus uh, critically thinking or trying to come up with, uh, you know, what's probable on your own. Here's a list of what you're allowed to think is probable, right? Always try to see uh, multiple interpretations and develop critical judgment. Manipulators may not be as stupid and uncritical as they pretend to be. So declassified in 2003, uh, Harry Truman thought the Soviets were a bunch of... uh, were a bunch of professional revolutionaries and used the weapon of Leninism, or as the Russians called it, organizational weapons. <laughs> so the, the weapon of Leninism obviously did not pan out for the Soviet Union as that system collapsed in utter failure. But Truman didn't know what was going to happen in the future, and he probably was scared or he was being misled by his experts. I don't know. But Truman didn't know how flawed this um, weapon of Leninism was and thought this weapon could be used against the Soviets. So uh, Truman had it taught at elite Western universities, apparently, according to this declassified document. So what this tells me is, one, political uh, considerations uh, have effect at elite universities. Aren't universities supposed to be separate from politicians and the government, right? Separate separate church and state, but how come we're not separating education and state, this is, right? This is clearly evidence that the state obviously has influence on what's going on at schools. Obviously, the, you know, you think the curriculum, but, you know, having, I'm not talking about like low levels of people voting in for school board members and things like that, right? Learning about how enemies' methods to destroy them uh, is one thing, but to learn their methods without context is reckless and irrational. Was this weapon of Lenin designed to be a Trojan horse? No. Otherwise, the uh, the Soviets were playing, you know, five dimension chess. Right? They they couldn't have been thinking that far, or they'd be super geniuses if they were. But if they were, you know. Uh, since their system collapsed, they clearly were not that smart. So therefore, I don't think they were thinking in five-dimensional chess. And I don't think they were planning it as a Trojan horse to, you know, ultimately destroy or attack the West, you know, ideologically in, in decades to come. So it was most likely a mistake by Truman and not a complicated plan, a conspiracy by the Soviets. Not to say that they don't do or didn't do uh, very intelligent, crafty things. I mean... Pretty smart uh, tacticians. But uh, is this crap still being taught um, in universities today? Well, looking at the garbage students being pumped out, it would appear yes. If you think about political systems, you know, we're taught in school about the feudal system, uh, you know, the landlord and serf, slavery with master and slave, capitalism with the exchange of labor and money, Marxism uh, with the way of taking away freedom in exchange for misery, <laughs> and democracy with the pseudo 
uh, popular vote, right? So what is a political system then? A, a system of manipulation and control over others. So a democracy only works uh, for the people when the people are well-informed. That means inform, uh, informed about what is true, obviously. When the people are manipulated and disinformed, it rarely pans out well for those people. <laughs> Without trying to sound like a Marxist, you know, what is the main thing ultimately being appropriated by all political systems? Time, your time, the time of the people, the time of the serf, time of the slave, the time of the laborer. Of course, you would argue it's power and control, but it's power and control over what someone else does with their time. They are the same grift, just reskinned in new clothes. Land is, of course, something, you know, uh, that's fought over. But if you control what people do with their time, you control everything, including land and resources. The problem is when other manipulators <laughs> uh, have their own sect and, 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 uh, and, or order, and it clashes within the group. So we get a clash of cults or a clash of civilizations. It's noticeable when there are different peoples fighting over, you know, resources. But like all big lies and false ideologies, it's easier to see how our society could be wrong when we see how crazy other societies are. We begin to realize our system may also be just as arbitrary and may not be as axiomatic or self-evident as we might think in a one-world system which is, you know, what we essentially had before the Industrial Revolution when we lived our little polycentric uh, world orders, right? So you didn't really travel outside of your, your area. So to you, what the, the order was in your little kingdom or fiefdom or whatever it was, was the world order because you didn't know about what went on anywhere else. So how much easier is it to break free from a false religion when you're exposed to several contradictory religions that are also taken just as seriously. You know, it's much easier. <laughs> That's another political system, religion, control over the following. It's odd how easy humans are manipulated. Why would we evolve with that trait? I don't know. Back to Erwin and his four points that make news. All about power for men, affections for women, it has to be familiar. It has, what's the effect on our personal concerns? And what's the importance of the effect and activities and its effects on other people? So also, you know, being in the news is not a gentleman, uh, gentlemanly thing, but uh, gentleman uh, desire. So Bernays writes about someone avoiding being in the news. He was safe only when he walked a straight, narrow path and kept quiet. Is this a warning to anyone who thinks questioning... Uh, a public narrative, right? If you question this public narrative, keep you better keep quiet or else we're going to put you in the news and shine a light on you and embarrass you and destroy your reputation and potentially your income. You know, if it is, then fuck them, right? I say shine a light on all those who question. It demonstrates not everyone believes the bullshit propaganda. Bernays uh, writes this cryptic paragraph, an overt act is often necessary before an event can be regarded as news. An overt act 
as opposed to what the norm of a covert act, right? Or is the act, you know, uh, you know, uh, the key point, you know, is the act part, which, which is, which is he emphasizing? I'm not sure it's bizarre, but in order for an event to be an event, there must be an act. Of course, there has to be an event. You know, can there be, can there be an event without an act? (laughs) You know, a fictional or an imagined event still has the act, you know, perhaps of a consciousness creating it or, you know, the, the, the false act. Is it still an act when you imagine it? No. Right. I feel I'm being a bit pedantic, you know, perhaps a bit too literal. I don't know. But so what would Bernays mean via a natural interpretation of this? You know, an overt act, probably meaning a blatant or obvious act. To me, covert means secret and overt means just not secret. So Bernays is most likely saying an obvious act is often necessary before it's considered news. Well, doesn't that go without saying? Sometimes an obvious act is just that. There is no thread to pull on. So why would Bernays make such a comment? Right? It goes without saying. That doesn't need to be said. The implication in the context of a book written about crystallizing the public opinion is that PR might need to fashion an overt act before their event is news. In reality, there are events happening continuously in the world, obviously, that can be framed and blow out of proportion to create not only news, but the right kind of news to push the specific narrative. 